Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. The Netflix documentary Downfall, The Case Against Boeing, screens this evening at the Capitol Visitor Center on Capitol Hill at 5 p.m. I spoke to Oscar-nominated director Rory Kennedy, daughter of RFK, and grieving father Michael Stuma, whose daughter Samia was killed in the second of two Boeing plane crashes in 2018 and 2019. I'm Michael Stumo. I'm the father of Samia Stumo, who died in the Ethiopian Airlines crash and, uh, three years ago. This is Rory Kennedy, and I'm the director and producer of Downfall, the case against Boeing. And Downfall, the case against Boeing is now streaming on Netflix for everyone to watch. And we wanted to do this interview this week because it's going to be showing in person on Wednesday, March 16th at 5 p.m. at the Congressional Auditorium in the Capitol Visitor Center um, down at East Capitol Street and First Street Northeast uh, with a and I think you guys will be there for both of you will be there for um, Q&A. Um, yeah. th- thanks so much for doing this. And I guess to start off, Michael, so, so sorry and, and our condolences. You know, the, the Boeing, the dangerous Boeing MAX 7, uh, 737 MAX 8, you know, which caused this crash. We found out, you know, sometime after losing Samia, who was 24 years old at the time in March 10th, 2019, we found out uh, it wasn't clear what caused the crashes at first. And over time, we found out that the, the MAX was a very dangerous plane with a dangerous design with software. Uh, you know, software that could take control of the plane away from pilots that wasn't revealed to pilots. And we started, my wife Nadia Milleron and I were working with, uh, reached out to other crash families around the world. They reached out to us and to each other. And we ended up uh, working, you know, with Congress to get legislation passed to hope this doesn't, to help this not happen again and do other things. And Rory was, uh, Rory reached out to me and I was very happy to work with her to get the word out further through this movie. And uh, just real quick before we dive into, you know, the the rest of the movie, um, just tell me about your loved one. You know, as the father of someone losing someone, it must be really tough. But I wanted to, before we talk about the movie, just tell me about their life. Yeah, Samia Rose Stumo again was uh, 24. Um, She uh, was (laughs) beautiful, smart, charismatic. Uh, loving, uh, had it all. She taught herself to read at age three to four. She was raising pigs on our farm at age seven, driving a tractor at age nine, went to first college at age 14, and then back again at age 17. And she had, uh, uh, was, she got a, 
a global health degree and a free ride scholarship by the Danish government in Copenhagen, and then had taken this job to set up some global health offices in East Africa uh, with a think tank, or sorry, uh, a think well, a global health organization, which fit her ideology of helping patients uh, uh, around the world in, in poor countries. And she flew from Washington to Addis Ababa, which is the capital of Ethiopia, on her way to uh, Nairobi, Kenya. And uh, she got to Addis and texted us saying she arrived and was about to get on the plane to uh, Nairobi, and she never made it. Wow. I wanted to just, yeah, thank you for sharing those the memories of her and her life. And uh, that's what makes this, that, that sets up why this is such a, such an outrage. And uh, well, well, Rory, we'll, we'll have you come in here now um, as the, the filmmaker of this movie. Um, it's called Downfall, the case against Boeing. And um, it, you know, it, it wasn't one, but, but two plane crashes in pretty quick succession. And that is not supposed to happen in modern aviation, as you say in the, in the piece. So um just explain how 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 you got involved how how did were you reading about these these stories in the headlines and say oh, oh my god that that is that is perfect for a film well you know i uh, fly like so many people and um had had uh read about the first airplane crashing the line airplane crashing and then when a second plane crashed and it was the same kind of plane a 737 max um, within five months of each other in, as uh, one of the reporters says that we um, interview in the film in eerily similar circumstances. Um, and 346 people having lost their lives, including Samia. Um, I was very upset and shocked about what happened. And then, you know, I, I noticed Boeing's response to these two airplanes crashing. And instead of responding in the way that I would imagine, which is, you know, to, to um, say not only how deeply sorry they are, um, but also to ground the planes immediately to commit to getting to the bottom of what happened to take responsibility. Instead, their response was to really focus on the pilots and very suggestive of pilot error. And I felt like there was much more going on behind the scenes. And I really wanted to figure out what happened, to know exactly what went wrong, to understand more deeply who was responsible, who knew what when, um, because I was invested in trying to make a film that would contribute to something like this never happening again. Absolutely. And just so I have the details from, you know, journalistically speaking for my article and, and for our listeners who maybe, you know, remember hearing it in the news, but, but lack the specifics in their memories, remind me of, of the dates of the two crashes and where exactly, you know, where were they headed and where did they actually um, plummet? Michael, do you want to respond to that? Sure. The first one was Lion Air, an Indonesian airline. It was October 29th, 2018. And that was the, it was a, both of these were three or month, four month old planes. They were brand new planes. 
And then a few months later in March, March 10th, 2019, the, uh, so that one in Indonesia was uh, flying out of Jakarta. Uh, the one in uh, Ethiopia where my daughter was on ET-302, uh, another MAX-8 aircraft <coughs> uh, flying from Addis to Nairobi. Gotcha. Thank you for reminding us that. And then you sort of hit it on it earlier, but I want to make sure I specify it. It was, there was something to do. You said it was to do with a flawed anti-stall system that like a faulty sensor that forced the plane's nose down repeatedly as the pilots tried to keep bringing it back up. Can you explain exactly which one of you would be able to speak to the, the specifics of the technical error there? Uh, I can give it a shot, Rory, if you like. <clears throat> Sure. So this is a, the 737 line is, is from 1967 when it first flew and they kept, instead of building a new plane, they kept sort of tweaking and upgrading and making a very different plane over the years, 14 or so different iterations. And this last one, they were putting these big new engines under it, but the plane was kind of set low so they couldn't fit the engines under the wings. So they put the engines sort of forward and sort of up on the wings, which made the aircraft want to tip up. And so they needed that aircraft to sort of fly like the past ones did and not sort of have that tip up. And when aircraft tip up and goes more and more straight up, they don't have any lift under their wings. They tend to stall, what they call a stall, and they can fall like a rock. So to make the planes feel up to pilots like all the other planes and not have that sort of soft, you know, sort of tip up feel, they put in secret software that would take control that they didn't tell pilots about that would push the nose down. And so they would never feel that sort of tip up tendency. And the same thing called these two angle of attack sensors on each side of the plane are designed to tell, you know, what, you know, what kind of tilt the plane has in relation to the oncoming wind as it's going through. And they sort of give a signal for that software to tip the nose down. But what happened is there's only one sensor tied to that software, computer and software. That sensor went bad and they're prone to failure. There's only one sensor, no redundancy, which you don't do in aviation engineering. The sensors went bad, sent weird data to the computer, which then told this software, MCAS, Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation Software, or MCAS, to push the nose down. <clears throat> and it kept pushing down hard, and the pilots are wondering why you know, it's, it's doing that. And there's a lot of alarms going on in the cockpits. And then the pilots you know, do something and try to pull back up, and the, and the thing tries to push it nose down, and it's a roller coaster ride repeatedly. Pilots trying to pull up the software, pushing it down, and in both cases, the pilots didn't have the strength to keep going with it and didn't have the information allowing them to fix the program, uh, the problem, because Boeing and FAA hid that information. Right. And, 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 and so then, yeah, that's the technical reasons for it. Thanks for walking us through that. And Rory, as, as you know, as, as the filmmaker trying to lay all this out for viewers and uh, talk about how, talk about some of the stuff that, that, 
viewers will be will find sort of maddening that will outrage them about how you know this mcas what's it called maneuvering implementation system yeah uh you know wasn't in the in the in the pilot manuals how you know people in in boeing were you know not letting them do flight simulator training and and deliberately misleading the faa like what sort of stuff in 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 the in the film um are we just going to be outraged by like that well, I think that, you know, there was a series of decisions that were made over many years um, that, that you know, and if you kind of look at what was the common denominator of, from Boeing in all of these decisions, it was to prioritize finances over safety. Um, you know, from, from the decision to make this aircraft that Michael described um, and, and it, you know, instead of Boeing had originally planned to make a new kind of airplane, um, but because they were in competition with Airbus, Airbus had just come to the market with an airplane that was, that was starting to um, take over some of their market share, they decided to use an old model of the 737, which was built in the 1960s. And as Michael said, put this new engine on it that was bigger, more fuel efficient, and then caused these um, errors. Instead of you know, bringing the plane down and starting from scratch and figuring out how to fix it, um, they just decided to fix it with a computer system, right? The MCAS system. They didn't tell the pilots that the MCAS system was on the plane. As Michael said, you know, you, you have to have redundancy when you have a system that could cause a catastrophic event where everybody on the plane would die. Um, they knew that this MCAS system could cause that kind of catastrophe. And we know that from internal memos that we show on, in, the, in the film as far back as 2016, there was a memo that showed that Boeing knew based on its own research that this MCAS system could cause a catastrophic event, which means everybody on the plane would die from a crash and that pilots needed to respond within 10 seconds and do exactly the right thing, or there would be a catastrophic event. And the, in the same memo, it said, really what you need to do at the very least is have pilot training. Boeing did everything they could, and we also know this from a, from a memo that was in 2013 that we also show in the film, that they made, took efforts to hide the existence of the MCAS system from the regulatory agency, the FAA, because they knew if the FAA was aware of the MCAS system and how powerful it was, it, they would require pilot training. The pilot training cost them a great deal of money, so they didn't want to do it. Um, they, there were also internal memos where Lion Air asked for pilot training, and they said, this system is too significant. And Boeing mocked them and said how stupid they were, that they couldn't figure out how to run the aircraft. Um, so, you know, there's a series of many decisions that were made over years that that really seemed to be based on this one factor, which is trying to save as much money and make as much money as possible. And if I could just add one more example, 
um, which to me is kind of the most upsetting, which is after the first crash, the, the Lion Air crash, there was a report done by the FAA called a TARAM report to analyze how safe this airplane was. That report concluded that this airplane, the 737 MAX, would likely crash 15 times over the course of its lifetime, which is on average once every two years, catastrophic mm -hmm. crashes where everybody would die. And Boeing and the FAA made the decision to keep that airplane in the air with the hopes that they would fix the system before another airplane crashed because they knew it was gonna cost so much money for them to ground the airplane and fix it on the ground. And you know we have Michael Stumo on this call and his daughter was on that second airplane. And we now know that Boeing knew that this airplane was likely gonna crash and they still put that airplane in the air. And to me, that's, I mean, I don't even think there's words to describe how, I don't know how somebody, I don't know how people make that choice. And I don't know, you know, I don't know how the people who's, who have family on that second airplane are able to reconcile in any way I mean, the loss that you have to go through, it's, it's, it's just beyond words, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it was also preventable, the, especially the second one also preventable and the, and the, the heartbreak that Michael, you felt and all the other families, all those other souls lost on that second flight, not to mention the first flight. Um, it, it, it's just heartbreaking. They, they, they knew what happened. The board never met about safety. The board instead granted themselves stock options. They granted more executive compensation. They did dividend buybacks, never met on safety. And instead, instead they just did press release spin saying, oh, it's safe. And the pilots didn't know what they were doing. That was their, that was their fix. Sure. On the, on the first, you know, when, when Boeing was asked, about not having the redundancy and not having any backup to the system, to the single sensor that can be hit by a bird or balloon or whatever, which happens quite, quite often. They said, you know, when Boeing was asked, well, why didn't you have redundancy? That's, that's not legal. You're not allowed to do that. They said, we do have, we did have redundancy. Well, what was it? It was the pilots. The pilots were the backup. On the first plane, the pilots didn't even know the MCAS system was on the plane. So how can that be a backup? You know, like that's that's ridiculous. That's insanity. Um, yeah, it's 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 it was also avoidable, and they just chose not to. Um, money money talks. It's so sad. Um, wow, I can't even imagine. I, I I wouldn't even be able to hop on a Zoom call if I were you, Michael. Like I'm 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 blown away that you're even joining us, and and Rory too. The the fact that you're able to to make a film about this to expose all this. Um, who who all do we bring in? Um, uh, like who all do we who all do you interview in in the film? Um, in turn, I know you you bring in some politicians, some some aerospace uh journalists, and and even even a fam the famous pilot is Sully Sullenberger. Um, you know who landed that miracle in the Hudson. Um, just talk about sort of sort of uh, the actual filmmaking of it. Who'd you, who all did you interview? 
Well, you know, I really wanted to interview people who had firsthand knowledge about what happened so that this is really a film from the, the, the people who were on the front lines of it. Um, so uh, it's to have kind of a, a, a deeper understanding of what happened in addition to interviewing people like Andy Pastor, who is a dogged journalist from the Wall Street Journal. Um, of course, Michael Stumo here, who, who lost his, his amazing daughter, Samia Rose on the Ethiopian plane and, and you know, miraculously and incredibly went from, from just deep sorrow to becoming an activist and really working with the other family members to uh, hold Boeing and the FAA accountable for what happened and continuing on that fight today. Um, we also interview people who worked at Boeing for for many decades and um, were eyewitnesses to the change the changes that happened in that company who worked on the 737 max um, you know we ultimately i think are really trying to make a film that helps people understand what happened as it was happening and then in um kind of the the third act of the film we go back to really understand what boeing knew when when a whole series of decisions were made and what the implications and ramifications of those choices were yeah and speaking of holding accountable what was the ultimate uh slap on the wrist that that they got i know there was a there was a fine that um what was it 2.5 billion dollars i think in that last year but but i think the company generated like 76.6 billion in sales the same year. So that's, you know, pocket change for them. And then, you know, also the, any criminal charges get resolved in that, in, in, in defrauding the FAA. So that gets resolved. So and now then they're freed up to do future government contracts. So I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, in, in the end, in the end, did, did Boeing, you know, pay, a big enough price or, or what, what, where does it sort of stand in terms of, you know, you guys are putting this film out there. Do you want them to um, face, face further scrutiny or, or sort of, yeah, just speak to sort of the aftermath. Well, I, I'm going to let Michael um, answer that uh, because I think he's got a good understanding of, of the $2.5 billion fine um, and, and how that money really translated. But I will just say that, you know, um, Congressman uh, DeFazio, who led the biggest investigation in the uh, Transportation Infrastructure Committee's history, um, said, you know, when when the when these case came down that this was really just a slap on the wrist for Boeing. Um, and uh, but Michael, do you want to talk a little bit more about, you know, the two point five billion dollars that was charge to Boeing? Well, ultimately, we want the executives to face criminal liability for what they did. Uh, they, they hid, they hid the, they, they, they caused the situation to hide the MCAS so that their pilots, you know, uh, test pilots could, would, would hide it and, and joke about Jedi mind tricking the FAA. Um, the deferred prosecution agreement, which is the criminal settlement, 
where the Department of Justice investigated Boeing for lying to the FAA and in, in did a criminal settlement. Uh, was it 2.5 billion? It was really 243 million with an M. The rest of it was not criminal fines. They just added you know, some compensation to the families and, and a lot of compensation to the airlines that were not part of the criminal fines. But in that criminal settlement, they affirmatively said the executives didn't do anything wrong that they could find, which is is uh, uh, which is never happens in these corporate criminal settlements to affirmatively exonerate the executives. They either say uh, the executives did engage in criminal behavior or they're silent. They never say, oh, they didn't do anything. So what happened was this multi-year uh, conspiracy to defraud the FAA to create, uh, to create uh, dangerous planes that put passengers like my daughter at risk. Um, to say that two pilots, which they said they were the only ones that uh, were, were, were criminally culpable, uh, Bo Boeing got the Department of Justice to throw two pilots under the bus and exonerate everybody at the top who created all this. So that's got to happen. And uh, <clears throat> Dennis Mullenberg, the former CEO of Boeing, he uh, left with a $63 million parachute, you know, golden parachute. Uh, he's the one, he and the current CEO, David Calhoun, Works together to you know keep the board uh, from knowing about the safety uh, issues. Never set up a safety committee. Just went on TV saying, "Oh, the thing is safe. Uh, it's just the pilots," and and hit it. And now Dennis uh, uh, David Calhoun, the current CEO, just pulled down 7.2 million uh, plus another 16 million in stock options from Boeing. And they haven't hired all the engineers they fired over the years as they were stripping the legacy assets of the company for profit rather than building new and great planes. They just took the legacy planes uh, uh, and, and just pumped up the profit. They didn't, you know, 1,500 engineers were fired over five years or so. They outsourced software. They outsourced this, that, and the other thing. They should be reinvesting in quality and the engineers and the software engineers to build great planes like they did 50 years ago. And they're not doing that right now. And the executives haven't faced criminal or civil direct personal liability. Wow. Well, Michael, yeah, I mean, keep up, keep up the good fight on that. Um, and <clears throat> I, again, I, 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 I so appreciate you joining me. I don't, I don't, I really have no clue how you, you and your family have mustered the strength to keep going after that. And, and, and Rory, Rory too. I mean, I, I mean, needless to say, I, I, in case our listeners aren't aware, you know, youngest, child of um senator robert f kennedy um i get but i i guess you i guess you were you were born um several months after um the the tragic assassination that changed american history if you ask me um but i guess do, do you do you do both of you I, I, forgive me if i'm trying to thread too much of a through line here but i guess do both of you feel a kinship or, or over ha or have any advice for other families the the fact that you your two families i mean in moving on after losing a family member, how, how do you, how have you each kept, you know, Rory, have you kept your father's memory alive? And Michael, how do you keep your daughter's memory alive? Like, how, how do you keep, how do you keep going as a family after such tragedy? Well, you, you don't have a choice. Nobody gives you a choice. You, you have to, um, and you don't move on. You sort of move through with that new shaping event. I mean, that starts at a, as an open, wound that you know that sort of you know, you know sharp throbbing pain that you can't think 
yeah. then you uh, it sort of scabs over over time, and then you have ultimately you know scar tissue in your scar, and that's that's the new that's the new normal. I think that is with everyone who loses a loved one. That kind of a there's ways to describe it. That's how I describe it. Um, not to say you know anything you know there's a particular pain with losing a child actually the most of the families that are still active in advocacy are the ones who lost a, a child yeah and rory anything anything you want to add i know completely different scenarios with your with your own father but i mean he was he was beloved in this town and around the world but anything you you could speak on on how overcoming grief like that well, you know, uh, I think that um, just to keep the focus on, on, you know, this particular story, I think that I, I just want to um, convey my admiration for, for Michael and for Nadia and for so many of the families um, who have just been through really unimaginable loss. Um, and I think having the added layer of knowing that this loss is directly um, related to a group of people who decided that their finances were more important than people's lives. Um, and, and that Michael and Nadia and their family and so many others were able to um, take this horrendous experience and turn it into something that um, I think is really helping to, to ensure that the rest of us when we're traveling are a lot safer. And I think um, would love to hear, you know, from Michael about his ongoing efforts uh, with Boeing, both with the 737 MAX and compensation that's been offered to him um, and, and it, his ongoing efforts to make sure that we are all safe. Michael, can you speak to that? We as families did work with the Congress to pass a major new law on aviation safety, which was, uh, which, which starts to fix a lot of the problems where the FAA delegated its safety determinations to Boeing itself. That was a huge deal. That's been a 15 year process of FAA just telling Boeing, you know, certify your own safety. So we're stopped that and we're reversing that. The bill actually in a divided Congress in the last uh, part of the Trump administration uh, passed with no, no votes. Uh, right now we're reopening, we're fighting to reopen the criminal settlement based upon federal law, which says the Department of Justice should have consulted with us as victims before settling with Boeing. Department of Justice uh, was legally required to consult with us before as they're investigating and planning to you know, prosecute or settle with Boeing criminally. They didn't. In fact, uh, we, we told them in February 2020, said, hey, you're investigating, we're victims, we want to be part of the investigation. They denied having one. And 10 months later, they announced a criminal settlement. So we're working hard to reopen that now uh, so that they can have the perspective of us families as crime victims uh, going forward. 
and there's continuing to be civil litigation as well. Uh, well, I mean, uh, I guess if you, you the the perfect place to keep up <clears throat> that pressure is uh, the Wednesday night screening at the Capitol Visitor Center. Um, again, everyone. It's called Downfall, the Case Against Boeing, um, screening at the Visitor Center in Capitol Hill um, Wednesday night. It's also on Netflix. Uh, if ever, it's streaming now if everyone wants to watch it. Um, and, then, and then definitely want to invite listeners to a- after this. I mean, definitely double back and, and catch Rory Kennedy's other past work. I mean, Ghost of Abu Ghraib won an Emmy. I mean, uh, and one, one of my favorite docs of the last decade was Last Days in Vietnam. That was nominated for an Oscar. I mean, you, you do such great work. Um, so I'm glad to see you, you keep it, keeping it going here. Um, thanks so much for, for joining us. I mean, I, I, I'm speechless at so much of this at the tragedy you've had to go through, but um, thank you so much for documenting it and, and, and doing it on the film. I, I really appreciate you joining us. And if people want to, to come, they're welcome to join us at the screening. We'd love to have them there. They just um, are encouraged to RSVP at alex at moxiefilms.com. Okay, sounds good. Hey, thank, thanks so much again, Rory Kennedy, Michael Stuma. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. Okay, best of luck with everything. All right, I'll see you on Wednesday, Michael. Okay. Take see care. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.